You're listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochchurch.sg. The title of the message tonight is The Presence of God. We're going to see seven things about God's presence. Specifically, of course, we always, as Christians, we talk about the presence of God. We mention the presence of God. In relation to the Spirit of God, we have the presence of God with us. Uh, but I'm not necessarily going to be speaking strictly about the presence of God in aspect of the Holy Spirit that is with us. God is here with us, present, and He's wonderful and beautiful, and, and we love His presence. But there's a bigger theological perspective about the presence of God, and that's kind of the approach uh, looking at some Old Testament passages as well as New Testament passages, I want to look at these things as we seek to understand in full uh, this, the presence of the Lord. We have to recognize that, that His drawing near to creation is something that He chose to do out of eternity. It stems from His being distinct from creation. The presence starts with that. God has always been and his presence is his reality in a plane or in a world that he has made that he intersects and he comes into but he is first above that's the first thing we see number one the presence of God is above and below and this revelation that a woman received uh, uh, actually a prostitute Rahab the harlot received this uh, uh, amazing revelation. Oh wait, I don't know if this is Rahab. This is Rahab or not? This is Rahab in the story of Joshua, or is it later? I think it is, right? Help me, theologians. Yeah. Okay, I'm just reconfirming that. But what really catches my eye is something that she says here. So let's read Joshua chapter two, verse eight. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, "I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us." So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Of course, he's speaking to, she's speaking to the spies. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. But here we see her with actually quite an interesting revelation concerning God's presence, and that God first of all was present in eternity or above, but also manifest on earth below. And if you consider the time frame of Joshua chapter 2, this is after Moses has already been taken away from the Israelites and buried in the hills by the Lord. And Joshua's going in, and the Red Sea really was 40 years before this. So the reputation of the Israelites and the great power that God had given them by drying up the Red Sea, for 40 years those legends were being told amongst the nations and the people, and she got a revelation concerning that, and she believed that that awesome manifestation of power that was unlike her gods was due to the fact that he is God both above and below. That first, eternal and powerful and sovereign, but secondly, here on the earth, manifesting and doing great things. And the presence of God is above and below, and it is because God, as 
God Almighty, eternal, he, has, he doesn't need anything from earth. He does not need anything from us. Uh, he is sufficient in himself. The Lord doesn't relate to this world because he feels that he can lack or he lacks something and he needs it for himself. No, he, he draws near out of the abundance of who he is to provide for us, to give to us, to love us. In fact, we were made by him first and foremost for his presence. And all he ever wanted was us to be with him in the presence of God. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So we see here God above, reaching down below out of eternity, first in creation itself, but also later in relating to his created man. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through this. But he's clearly saying, yeah, I live in a high and holy place. But also with the one who is contrite. This means someone who is penitent or someone who is humble and open, that is not self-justifying. This is the man in the temple that beat his chest and said, have mercy. Uh, I'm a sinner and God related to that and we saw that when Jesus was on earth he related to people who were humble like the Syrophoenician woman willing to accept being called a dog no problem even the puppies eat the crumbs he loved people with humility he loved people that understood this exact principle that he was from above and those who did not believe in Jesus while he was on earth simply did not accept him as someone that is above but they saw him as earthly. And that really is what divides the line between people who truly partake in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do not. You must believe that he is who he is, that he is God Almighty, and that he's a rewarder of those that are diligently seeking him. So faith is built on that. We cannot please him without that. So we believe that he is first above, then down below here on earth, and his presence is built on that concept. He reaches down, out of eternity to us. And if we're humble, uh, we're in a place of humility and brokenness, well, His eternalness will manifest toward us. He will come and take care of us and meet our needs. And He's willing to, He's wanting to do exactly that. But He is above, but He's also below. Now, related to that is my second point. Number two, the presence of God is everywhere and here. He's everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 5 says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, well, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is a beautiful words written by the psalmist concerning this fact that God is everywhere. The omnipresence of God is inescapable. And he knew that wherever he goes, that's where God, he's not like he can run away. You can climb the highest mountain, uh, there he will be. 
You go down to the deepest valley, there he will be. You go down into the Mariana's Trench in the depths of the ocean that is deeper many times over than Everest is tall, and you will find him in the bottom of that trench. He is everywhere on the face of the earth. He's omnipresent, he's powerful, and he's wonderful, but he is also here. I reflect on the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 26. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. So we know God is everywhere. Solomon knew that God was everywhere. Solomon up to this point was not having many experiences with what you and I would call the manifest presence of God. You understand? He was in a covenant relationship and educated and understood things that his father taught him. But the manifestations of God doing miraculous things were not really a part of his life up to this point, if you think about it. So he's just conjecturing. He's not even sure because of his wording, you see, but will God really dwell on earth? Like he's inviting him because his father said, when you build the temple, invite him to dwell and be there. So he is asking, he built this glorious temple. David spent his whole life accumulating the resources and the materials to build that temple. We know that God did not allow him to build it because of the sins of his life, the bloodshed of the innocent, those things. He said, no, but if you will be able to finance it, by collecting all these materials, and he did that. He amassed gold and cedar and all the materials to put it all together to make this magnificent temple that now Solomon has put together, and this is his request. Solomon understood God as omnipresent, but now he's placing a demand on him, not just to be everywhere, but to be here. Now, you know the outcome of this prayer. After he prayed this, it says the glory of God filled the temple with such power and intensity that the priests could not enter. The glory took over the temple. No one could even get in, at least for a while, because God respected this petition. It's the same with us. Yeah, he's everywhere, but if we place a demand on him and we invite him into our life, then he will come. Because there's a difference between saying God is everywhere and that God is here. A lot of believers are like this. I think a lot of believers find it easy to think of God as everywhere, but they're a bit more challenged to think of God as here. And that really is my ministry. My ministry is teaching about the presence of God. My ministry is teaching about the Holy Spirit in a personal form that you can relate to and know. That He's not just everywhere, but He is here with us. And we talk about God's presence being inescapable. He's everywhere, He's present, but the omnipresence has to become manifest presence for us all. And it seems like throughout the Bible, really, the scriptures are very concerned not with God as a mystical, supreme, omnipresent being, but as a very real individual interjecting into personal lives, showing up at certain times and in certain places in a very real and, dis and discernible way. Showing up in a furnace like one, the Son of Man, just appearing there, God's Son, 
Shine up on the plain as Abraham come back from the victory to receive the tithe in the form of Melchizedek, the high priest. Showing up at times at the tent of uh, Abraham when he was on his way um, in, the, in the wilderness when the Father, God himself, was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He appeared to him in the tent. They both knew it and were frightened and bowed down to him as Lord. So we see God in a very real and personal way. And then I, this leads me to think about the Bible itself. The Bible is a book about one primary thing, and that is the presence of God. And I'll prove it to you. Number three, the presence of God is the beginning and the end of the Bible. Now we know there's 66 books in the Bible. Genesis being the first, Revelation being the last. If they were individual books, that'd be your bookends. Genesis is here, Revelation is there. So I want to take a passage from the beginning and the end. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we start there. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God. Did you know God can make a sound when He is real and personal? He, he could hear the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So now let's start in Genesis. It's really interesting what we see in this passage. God is not some mystical being. God is a very real person. This was the beginning. This was his creation. He made Adam and therefore made Eve consequently because it was not good for Adam to be alone. He made Adam first and foremost for him to be with him and he made him in his image and his likeness. I know you probably have a mental picture of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve there and God like some giant walking through. You know that idea we have? I don't picture it that way at all. I think he measured himself out and he drew an image of himself in the dirt. He amassed it, made it into the form the same as him. I think that when God walked in the garden, he was the same height looking straight into the eyes of Adam. I think it was the same God that we know today in the form of the person in the spirit and also in the form of the physical Christ. And there he was in the garden walking with him and talking in a very personal way. And this was God's original design. This was God's original strategy for us. So here in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it tells us this story of a personal God with man. So we see him walking and talking just like he can do with us. This is his man. This was his design. This was his desire and his purpose for what he created. Now, let's go to the last book in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away or wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
So here in Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, it tells us that God will be physically and intimately and personally with us again. Once again, there in heaven, I know sometimes we have this massive giant God image, but I think we're going to be quite surprised when we see the Lamb upon His throne that He is essentially our size. That He's a human form. I know you have this idea. I don't. I think because we are made in His image and likeness, it means that we are made in His image and His likeness. So He is in our form. We will relate to Him. We will be able to, to enjoy Him. He will walk up to you. <laughs> you understand? God is going to walk up to you and talk to you personally. He's going to know you and you will know Him and He will be your God and you will be His people or His person in a very singular way and you will look straight into the eyes of Him who has done all things and made all things. And this is what's so amazing about God's book. The Bible is a story that starts with God and man together in a very real way and ends with God and man together in a very real way. The in-between passages are just our mistakes, our problems, and our issues about being limited to the access of His presence or being able to have His presence. Not His fault, He did everything possible, but because it was His vision, let's just say that God had a vision. We say that all the time. You have a vision, I have a plan, this is my strategy. God had a vision, He had a plan, a strategy. It was to make someone with whom He could fellowship. And that was it from the beginning, but also it will be in the end. Not just for a little while, but forever. Forever and ever. We will personally be with Him in that regard. And that's good news about the presence of God. And the Bible is a story about it. And we read that. This is the purpose of redemption and reconciliation so that we can be personally with Him in His presence. Number four, the presence of God seeks His own. Genesis 3, 23. Now we just saw that there's in-between going on between Genesis and Revelation. We're going to talk a little bit about that because they made a mistake. It says in Genesis 3, um, 23, So the Lord God banished him, Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we see in this first passage that God has banished man from the garden. And this makes me really start to think about Eden. What was Eden? Eden was referred to as a garden. It was referred to as paradise. That paradise, why was it paradise? It was not paradise because the trees were nice. It was paradise because God was physically standing in that place with them. So paradise for us is exactly that. When Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, he meant reconciled and brought to a personal place with him together in eternity. And this is exactly what we see happen here. Sin that Adam committed caused God to have to banish him from paradise. He could not dwell with him like he dwelt before. And there are other things involved there with the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then the tree of life that he had not let him have access to that. But that all is part of the very real and powerful presence of God because he will give us of the tree of life when we get there. 
And he will give us of the living water there that is physically flowing. We will drink of that and we will partake in all the greatness of God. But we made a mistake and man failed in his relationship. Exodus 6, 7, God saw this and he started figuring out a way through the law. He says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Exodus 29, 45. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Now here, this is God speaking about the fact that to remedy the problem of the banishment from Eden, he found a way that his presence could dwell with him. Actually, he had a different plan that they messed up as well. If you remember, he came down on the mountain. The mountain was covered with a thick darkness and it burned like fire. And God's on the mountain and invited the people to come up and see him. And the elders of Israel went up and ate and dwelt in the presence of God. So God figured out a way to do it. And he did it in that moment, but they were afraid, they were frightened, the people were frightened, and God found out that it's not going to work. I don't know exactly all the details of the dynamics of why it wouldn't work, but I do know that if they stepped foot on the mountain at certain times, they would drop dead, and so would their animals. So there was something about the majestic, holy perfection of God's presence that was lethal to man. Why? Because of the element of sin in man. That's why we say, well, man can't dwell with him. Sin cannot abide in the presence of God. The darkness could not. And at that time, the only way that they could possibly approach the closeness of God as in the temple was by many sacrifices, by the sprinkling of blood. There had to be a lot of things, and then they had to be really careful. I often thought about the high priest when he was scheduled to go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled by the blood, what was going through his mind as he entered that Holy of Holies? What was he thinking? I would have been thinking, don't think bad thoughts. <laughs> I would have been thinking, don't think bad thoughts. Think, stay pure, stay pure, stay pure. I would have been chanting hallelujah or something. Uh, just because, you know, our brains can go anywhere. And just imagine if you're, you cleanse in that moment, but how long is it going to last? Because the Bible says it didn't last. It was only for a season that it would end. So the atonement could only cover you for a little while, but it had to be continuously done again and again to maintain you, kind of like bathing. But so there had to be a better solution for that. And we know what that is, and that's what we see in number five. The presence of God is perfected in Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, it says in John 1, 1, verse 2. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Skip down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, his presence was manifested here physically. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So here, the presence of God is perfected in Jesus. To further understand this, we look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, 
Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So here God himself came to save us from the separation. He tried to visit the elders. It didn't work. Apparently they would die in his presence. They were scared. He tried to make atonement through animals and sacrifices. And for a while had a tabernacle set up in a tent and would come down upon it. There in the center, the priest could hear him actually speaking. He has always been desperately trying to have his presence with us. His solution was to physically come down in our identical form. You know, Philippians 2 speaks very clearly about the fact that Jesus did not see his divinity as something he should hold on to. And he let it go. He emptied his divinity out and he took upon himself this form to come so that he could know what we know, feel what we feel, see what we see in a physical, real way and be tempted and feel passions and ideas and things. You say, well, he didn't feel passion. You, you're getting sacrilegious now, implying that he was passionate. He was angry. Uh, he was sad. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible. He experienced all the emotions. If it says that he was tempted by all the same things that affect us, well, guess what? He had to deal with passions too. But the fact is, he did not follow them to their destructive end. He discarded them, and he had inherently the ability to do so because he was not the son of an earthly father, but of an eternal father. Physically, though, formed. It is a majestic and amazing phenomenon that God could create a living being inside of a woman by the seed of God, and it could be a human just like us physically. But that's what Jesus was. Jesus was the perfect presence of God. Jesus was here before, I believe. I really believe in the idea of pre-incarnate Christ, and that he had been here, and he had walked here. But in the merciful act of his coming to earth, he reconciles us to what? To the, he reopens the access to the presence of God. But he does that with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But he spoke of another age. He spoke of another time. He could be here physically in one place. He could not be many places. He could only be with 12 guys pretty consistently, another 70, and then thousands in a group every once in a while. But he could not personally interact with those thousands of people. It's not possible because of his limitations. But he could relate to a few, and those few he said some very important things, and one of them was, look, it's a better deal for you if I leave. Because he knew that a new age, a new dispensation would come where his presence, the presence of God, would become a greater and more efficient reality to us all because it would lack the limitations of a time being. You could say that. He, time and space. We say those things together. God is not limited in time. A day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So also is with space. There is no limits to, he can be here, he can be there, he can be anywhere instantly. And he, he can do that. He can do that with you if he wants to. He can take you wherever. You heard my testimony last week. Suddenly, he, he stood me there at the gates of heaven to see my dear friend go in through those gates. 
That is his ability. He can, we can transcend space and time very easily under his power. But Jesus could not do that in himself physically. So he knew, no, it's better. You need the next permutation, the anos paracletos. You need another kind of counselor, comforter. The same, but different. Same, same, but different. So he came down in the form of the Spirit, which was the birth of the church. The breath of God breathing life into the aforementioned body of Christ is the Holy Spirit, and that's where the church came from. So we see number six, the presence of God is the purpose of the church. Actually, you could say the presence of God is the church, because His presence with us is what means we are the church. Two or more gathered in His name, He's there in the midst of us. So we are the place that He dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Now, this is interesting if you look at this, because I see a plurality here, not a singularity, in you. And in the Greek, it is speaking to you plurally. And that's why it's overemphasized in the end there, redundantly, where it says, and you together are the temple. Because he's talking about the amalgam or the collective of the body of Christ. We need to be together. We need to dwell together. That's where he dwells. Where two or more. He qualified it that way. He said there has to be a number of people together in a place. Yes, you can have a personal relationship with him, but we're talking about the church. You by yourself are not the church. You with others, that's the church. And we have to be all together in one accord in one place for everything to work the way God wants to, and you should be very careful about doing anything that would divide the church. You understand what he's saying here? Look at this again with the idea of it being plurality of you. Don't you know that you yourselves, plurally, you guys all together, you could say, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in the midst of you together as a group? If anyone destroys God's temple, now how do you destroy a temple? destroy a temple, I have to literally go and knock it down. I mean, it happens. People go destroy churches and physical buildings. The analogy, though, we see here is if we do something, that's why the works of the flesh, 75% of them are dealing with schisms and divisions and heresies and parties where people differ in opinions and it causes a severing of what could be the unity of people together in a group. And that is also Satan's number one objective. As an individual, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. As a church, a collective, a body, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's why his seeds of discord are sown. That's why he comes to get us to turn on each other. But we have the ability to make choices in spite of our instincts to love each other and walk together. And I don't want to be held responsible for having torn his temple down. You get it? That the temple, we together are that temple. We must work together for that unity. I'm very excited about what could potentially happen soon as we are relating to more and more churches and other people and pastors and leaders. And I want, I want to come together with the body of Christ throughout this land. I believe in my destiny. I don't think I was sent here for one church. I don't think God brought me to this land uh, to, and showed me all that he showed me so that I could be in one place. I think I am supposed to be utilized 
use, abused if necessary, I don't care. Use me, abuse me, mistreat me. I would rather be mistreated in the process of making contact with the universal body of the Lord Jesus Christ in this nation than be protected and safe in one little zone where a singular church is. I'm, I'm ready for them. Without some form of slavery, we can never fulfill the purpose of God. You heard what I said? Without some form of slavery, that's why Paul said, you're going to serve something. Either serve the flesh, which is your own individual selfishness, self-focus, and your desires, and your self-preservation. Save your life, you lose it. But if you enter into some form of slavery, if you become, as Paul said, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you lay that down. And what is a servant? A servant is mistreated on purpose. A servant is not honored. And this is our job in the temple. If we are the temple and we are support of the temple, then we need to make sure that we lay our lives down. And I'm eager to be a part of that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there? between the temple of God and idols. For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out of them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not un no unclean thing, and I will receive you. So here we see a sanctification, a separation that God does. So the New Testament actually calls the church a temple for a reason. And this is a reference to the church. The temple. You are the temple together. Here further emphasizing that fact Paul had a very strong theory or idea because it was a fact that we as a collective come together to do this and so be careful who you ally with and connect to. Beware of unholy alliances. Beware of people who are not truly of Christ. You reach to them, love them, serve them, help them. But watch the bonding that you do. You want to be bonded together with the body of Christ, with people who name Jesus as their Savior. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near the Jews and the Gentiles. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together collectively to become a dwelling in which 
God lives by His Spirit. So here we clearly see the church, the presence of God on earth today is the church. The Spirit dwelling in that place. It's kind of a cauldron. It's a mixing pot of personalities. When we come together, we worship and He comes and He dwells there. The trick would be then to bring people from without into that presence. For someone to meet God, for someone to meet Christ, our mission is to bring them to our collective. If we can somehow get them to come, and I know anybody that does dare come to a meeting where we meet in the Holy Spirit, they know there's no doubt that something's going on. They feel Him. They know that He's there. And that's really what we're going to work toward the best that we can to reach out some way to connect with people so they can meet Him with us together as a group. Whatever I do, wherever I go, I want us all to do it together. Uh, if I'm going in and out, you know, new things, I had a great week with my son uh, talking about what's coming up in Tokyo, what we're going to do there, projects, daycare center that they want to do, this idea of that. We're praying for everything to work out for him, but now I'm already projecting multiple trips into Japan, and I have people want to help me to do that, to be able to get there so that I can be an active part of that work that we're going to do there. And as we do that, of course, I want us all involved in it. I want us all to participate together as the temple of God. Because where we go, He will be with us. That's where the presence will go. I mean, I travel often by myself. I preach and teach. But there's a greater dynamic and a greater flow and a greater power when I travel with you. You know, Matthews and Susan, with Anne, with the groups of people when we go to different nations. When we're in a group, we are the church. Because this is what we see. When the temple moves, God goes with His temple. And that is our collective. We work together as a group. I may just be a mouthpiece in that moment where I speak, but we all have mouths and we all will speak. And we all represent Christ, but together as the church. And really, this principle we see of the presence of God being the church through this image, we see that the community of Christ is, and in the same time that we're waiting for Jesus to come back, is the instrument the Lord uses to disseminate His presence to a lost and sinful world. And this is where the gifts are too, by the way. This is how if you have the gift of the word of knowledge, it speaks about prophecy. If an unbeliever comes in and the thoughts of their heart are laid bare, and you tell them they would then say, indeed, God is with you. The presence is proven by the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. All those things that we do together in the church. So we see this image, and accordingly, the church has two clear purposes, really, the way I see it. The church works within itself for the sanctification of its members to prepare God's people for God's present and future presence. In other words, here, but also outward, as we grow out of a work, we represent, we are the temple in that regard. Secondly, the church works externally, to share the gospel so that the lost may enjoy God's presence now and forever as well. Amen? And that's the church. That's the purpose of the church. That's His presence. And I, I had to cut out many, many passages that say exactly the same thing. The Bible always speaks in accordance with the other passages about this fact. Amen? We are the church. I'm glad the presence of God is the purpose of the church. The presence of God is the church. A church without the presence is ridiculous. It's like a king without a kingdom. 
If you have a, a uh, I mean, a kingdom without a king. If you have a king, the joke is, if you have a kingdom without the king, then it's just dumb. Right? I say that all the time. You get it, king? Dumb, dumb. Stupid joke. But it's true. If God's not there, if the presence of the Lord is not with us, we're wasting our time. I don't want to be a part of something that God is not in and on. How do you recognize the temple? God's in it. If I go somewhere and a lot of people say that they are the temple and God's not in it, I have some serious questions about whether or not that is indeed the temple. I'm just being honest. But if God is present and moving and active and you know it, I know it, and together we feel it, and we've not known that each other like, yeah, you feel that, that's because the Master is with us and we are the temple working together. And it's wonderful. And we end with this one, number seven. The presence of God is our joy and strength. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Wow, what beautiful words. Presence of God. Eternal pleasures, joy that comes. He is, you know, it says the joy of the Lord is our strength. We know that. Psalm 21, 6. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with joy of your presence. It's talking about the king of the land that is serving God and knows God, the psalmist writes. Granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. Jude one twenty four. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. And that's really where all of this stems into. And every message I have comes out of the Bible reading, right? So this just recently we went through Jude. And this whole thing retroactively went back. And the whole concept of the presence of the Lord. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence. That is his purpose. That's his plan. But I want to think about one last thing as, we, as we're closing out this message. If we're honest... Uh, a lot of us have a concept about the presence of God or about God himself kind of like a genie in a bottle. You know, genie in the lamp. How many of you have seen Aladdin? This powerful being inside this lamp. And when you need it, you, you know, you rub the lamp, sim, sim, salabim, you know, and you say some, something and she comes out and I will grant you three wishes. You know, whatever. You get the wishes. And then when it's all said and done, he goes back in the bottle and you put the bottle or the lamp on the shelf. A lot of times people relate to the presence of God like that. He's a genie in a bottle. When they need a thing, or they need something that they saw their neighbor has that they don't have, often it comes down to that. I was thinking about that today, going to Japan, going to these countries, the things I see, consumerism, materialism. I see the faces on the post book majority of faces are about what people have and what they want. I mean, the, the posts that they make there. Desires, things they achieve, rings and shoes and houses and cars and all the stuff that is virtually worthless at the end of the day. There's so much in that and that's often why we relate to God. It's the genie. And I don't think that's fair to him and I don't think that's correct because that's not a real relationship. It's like if I only relate to you when I need something, how does that, how does, how, what kind of intimacy can we build upon that? His presence is not designed in this respect of a provider only. He wants a habitation with you. He wants 
to constantly be with you in the reality of His presence. To be your daily strength, your daily joy, the smile on your face. As Catherine Coleman said, the presence of God with His people is not a mere theory. The presence of God with His people is a fact. It's real. And we have the presence always. The scripture's clear and the life itself, principally the gospel life, the way we live for Christ, is about being in God's relational presence. That's really everything. It is the beginning and it is the end, as we saw earlier. That's what we're all heading to. But we don't need to wait. We have it now. He's with us. We can enjoy. Always remember, and it is really our obligation every day to seek His presence. To seek a reality. To seek something. If someone may say, well, you know, I don't quite feel it. Well, just keep pushing till you feel it. It's like digging a well. We talked about that. Just keep digging until water comes up. You strike oil eventually. You just have to keep. The one that keeps seeking. The one that keeps asking. The one that keeps, keeps constantly um, uh, pushing forward. Pressing beyond. That's the one that will have encounters with the presence of God. It should be, if it is, and it is to me, the most important element of existence, how many of you could agree, it's the presence of God. That's it. It's the highest thing. There's nothing higher, nothing more valuable, nothing greater than that. Then why are we wasting so much time, at times, seeking things that are not that? Well, that's what we want. We seek first the kingdom. Seek first His righteousness. His presence with us. And everything else, He, he wants to bless you. He wants to, He knows what you need before you even ask, Jesus said concerning prayer. Your Father knows. He knows what you need, what He wants. What He's longing for is for you to want Him and to long for Him. And the God-seeker is the one that is truly in spirit worshiping Him, connecting in sincerity, spirit and the truth, the presence of God. And I'm grateful for His presence. And I want I want us as a church, I want us as brothers and sisters in the Lord, with all of our faults and flaws, I want us to be able to help people understand and receive the presence of God. That's my mission. That's my desire. These are the things we saw. Seven things about God's presence. Number one, the presence of God is above and below. Number two, the presence of God is everywhere and here. Number three, the presence of God is the beginning and the end of the whole Bible. Because the Bible is a book of the presence. The presence of God seeks His own. He's been working very hard for a long time to bring restoration to His presence with man. And the whole Bible is a story of that attempt. Constantly. Then we know it's not always easy, so it is in our own personal lives. The history of the Israelites is a wild roller coaster ride, up and down, up and down. And if we're honest, we know that in our Christian life, often it's like that. Really, I heard someone define Christian spiritual maturity one time as your your roller coaster turns into a train. You just learn how you find a medium and you exist steadily in that plane with God and there's gradual ascent and it's no longer just this up and down thing. You gain stability and that takes years, years to get there. By the way, prayer life 
that takes years. Bible understanding, that takes decades. People all the time, you know, they want to understand, they want to know, they want to feel, just, it's like being a toddler and wanting to fly an airplane. You know, just, you can do it. Just give yourself some time to grow and learn the necessary principles that will enable you and give you the skill set necessary to, to do that. And it is His Word, it's prayer, it's relationship with Him, and consistency, that even train track, that level surface, it will only come through time and experience with Him in His presence. But He's doing everything, on His side, He's doing everything possible. And the, and the ball's in our court concerning that. We need to press in. And the presence of God is perfected in Jesus. It was the perfect manifestation of His presence. Wouldn't be surprised if you could go back in time to the Garden of Eden and stand there, and then could go back in time 2,000 years ago to the day that Christ was walking around, that there would be a striking resemblance between those two guys. You look and say, wait, and if you could travel through time and go into that fiery furnace, but Shabbat, Meshach, and Abednego, and see that one, hey, you could go see Melchizedek in his eyes, You'd put, hey, I know that guy. He's just always been here for us. <laughs> He's here right now. It's all he wants. All he wants is to be with us. The presence of God is the purpose of the church. That's why we're here. That's why we gather together, so that we can be with Him and He can be with us. He is so kind, so benevolent toward us. Out of His presence pours forth from eternity's every good and perfect gift. In His presence there's fullness of joy. Pleasures. Pleasures forevermore, it says. The presence of God is our joy. It is our strength. Amen. Thank you for listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. If you would like to support our efforts, please consider making a donation at www.antiochchurch.sg. Thank you.